If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 3 or turn on to Galatians chapter 3, and for using the, the Bible on the pew rack or on the chair underneath, if you want to turn to page 973. Probably not every day, but I think every once in a while, all of us ponder what I guess you could call sort of big life questions. There's different events happen at different seasons in our lives, and these questions kind of come up in our minds like, what is the answer to that question? How do I deal with that? How do I make sense of that? And you can see some of them. Questions like, you know, why am I here? Or what's the point or purpose of life? Or how did the world come to be? We, we kind of wonder about those things. We kind of wonder about the answers. Some other questions we ask, like, what happens when a person dies? That's probably not a question we ask every day, but if you have a loved one that dies, you kind of wonder that. You know, why does life hurt? That, that can happen to us. We, we wonder about that. We also, why does suffering happen? You know, we ask those kinds of questions as life goes on and things grab us and get our attention. Or, you know, why doesn't life go the way I want? There's enough people in this room that are could be labeled as control freaks that I know you all have it. Life's got to go this way. And then it goes this way. That's a really hard thing. We wonder why. We, we wonder what really is the good life. Those are questions we ask. And sometimes we ask, you know, is there a God? I don't think that's a wrong question to ask because we're trying to make sense of them. We wonder, is there a God? Or even the final question, how can I have a right relationship with God? All of us are probably going to ask versions of those questions. We're all going to try to ask them. Now, I'd love to tell you that today, in the next 25-ish minutes, we're going to answer all those questions. Probably can't do that. But what we are going to do is really try to focus in mostly on the last question. And the reason we're going to focus in on the last question is because in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, I think that's really what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to answer that question. How can you have a right relationship with God? That's a huge concern that he has. Now, we're going to get to those verses, but before we do it, just very quickly, I want to do kind of what I'd call a, a reality check, okay? Why is it that we ask those questions? Why is it that we, we want answers to those things? Why is it across the spectrum, whether you're talking about a variety of religions or people that say, well, I don't think there is even is a God, they're still trying to answer those questions. Why is that? And I want to suggest to you really quick, I think there's three reasons why we ask those kinds of questions. Okay, one, is, one reason would simply be this. We know, we have some sense, and when I say no, we have this sense that there's more to life, but we can't quite grasp it. We, we know there's something more, but we don't know how to make sense of it. Solomon, the, the wisest man who ever lived, had that sense, and so he put it in some words that maybe we could relate to in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. You know, he has made everything beautiful in its time. God's done that, great, but also He's put eternity into man's heart. Well, there is a sense, there is more, we have a sense of that, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We have a sense there's more, but we don't quite understand it, so we search, we try to find answers to those questions. A second reason why I think we do this is there's a part of us that knows that something's not quite right. There, there's something in us that there's a level of discontent. I mean, part of it we know that there's so many advertising campaigns about all the different things you need to have so that your life will be the good life, which tells us, I, I want this, but there's a gap. There's sort of a, a difference. There's something not there, so we try really hard to 
I know life's not right, and I've got to find it to make it right. Third reason why I think we, we go there is simply because we want to have the right answer. Now, you can interpret that statement, we want to have the right answer, a few different ways, but what some people have kind of concluded and realized is, okay, if there's a God, okay, now that's an assumption. Some people say, if there's a God, and He is who the Bible says He is, so He's the judge of all, but He's also the Savior, then wouldn't you want to know how to have a relationship with Him? I mean, because if he's the judge of all, wouldn't you want to have some level of certainty to know I've got a good relationship with God and I know I have a good relationship with God? Because if you don't know that and God is who he is, that has some pretty significant personal consequences for every single one of us. But it's not just a personal consequence. We've talked a number of times as we've been working our way through the book of Galatians about our friend Martin Luther, the guy that 500 years ago on Tuesday put those, not those literal ones, but ones like those. We didn't steal the original ones. No one knows where the original ones are, okay? So this is not something you should sneak into church and steal and try and sell and make money. You're not going to make money selling that. Just wanted to make that clear. But 500 years ago, he put those up, and one of the things he has said in, in writings that came later, and this is a little bit of a paraphrase, that's why I don't have it on the screen. It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but he basically said, you know, if justification stands, if you and I can know how to have a right relationship with God, the church stands. If justification collapses, if we don't have an answer to the question of how to have a right relationship with God, then the church collapses. Okay? If we can't answer this question, how to have a right relationship with God, then quite frankly what we are doing right now, what we have done this morning and being in this building is a complete, utter waste of time. So this is a pretty huge thing, answering that question. So how do we answer that question? How, how do we answer? Well, what Paul does is he's going to jump in in verses 10 to 14 of Galatians, 2, or Galatians 3, excuse me, and he's going to sort of offer us two alternatives, sort of two options, okay? So I want to kind of walk through the, the two options, okay? Option number one would be this. How can I be right with God? Well, the response would be my efforts matter, okay? I need to do something to be right with God. It's up to me. Okay, there's a sense if you want to look for a definition, it would be I need to do something to earn or gain God's favor. Okay, I need to be engaged. Back in Galatians 1, when Paul said in the first part, I think verses 8, 7, 8, and 9 of Galatians 1, Paul talked about another gospel. People said there's another gospel. This is really what he's talking about. People saying that, hey, the way to be right with God is you've got to do something. Now, you might still say you need Jesus in some way, but it's like, no. I've got to add to that. I've got to do something. My efforts contribute. To jump in, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul kind of talking and kind of is going to address this. Now, we're going to come and look at this verse twice, but to start with, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, we're going to come back and talk about the word curse, but before we get there, I want you to understand the last part of the verse, what's in quotation marks there, the last sentence, 
is really a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And what we think Paul's doing is he's saying to people, okay, you want this option that your efforts matter. Then I'm going to tell you, here's the rules. If that's the way you're going to approach things, here's the rules. And he, so he quotes this verse, and basically what he's saying is if you want to live by the rules that your efforts matter, then you need to understand, you need to obey the law, you need to do the law all the time, every part of the law, completely. Okay, when he says in the verse there, abide by all things, it's not just, hey, I did this once. No, I'm living there, always doing all of it, all the time. He's saying if you want to play by those rules, that's what it is. That's what you need to do. If you want to look at a verse in the New Testament that kind of reminds us of that, that if you want to live by the law, it's an all or nothing thing, you can write down James chapter 2, verse 10. You've got to do it all. If you don't keep it all, it's no good. It's not just a, hey, I got 90%. 90% is not good enough. Paul continues to go down and look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 12 to kind of draw more of this out. He said, but the law is not of faith. He's trying to make it very clear that of the two options. We're going to get to the faith option, but they're separate. They're not combined. They're separate. They're two options. And he says, but the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's quoting from another Old Testament verse, from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And Paul, again, is, is reiterating that if you claim well, the law is where you're going to find your life, your effort is what's going to give you life, you can live by it, but you've got to keep the law all the time. Not just some of the time, not just, hey, I did it really well this week. No, it's not I did it really well, it's I did it all the time completely. But there is a slight problem with this option. Okay, we can say this is an option, but there's a little problem with the option. Okay, from the reality of our own experience and from the testimony of Scripture, we know we don't get it right all the time. Okay, you could look at Psalm chapter 14 verse 3 or Romans chapter 3 verse 23 and it kind of points out we might do really well, but we still fall short. And you talk about the, our own experience. Whether you look at your experience and say, you know what, I've, I've struggled maybe with being angry when I shouldn't have been angry, or I have guilt and there's a reason I have guilt, or there's shame in my life, or there's fear in my life. There's some things that we experience and we realize, I, I didn't get it right. Okay, it is an option to say you can try to be right with God, be in a right relationship with God on your own efforts, but Paul's sort of seeming to say, there's a problem here. Well, what happens if there's a problem? What happens to the shortcoming? Look again at verse 10, and now we are going to talk about the word curse. If you try this approach, where does it lead? Well, for all who rely on the works of the law are what? They're under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Really quickly, when the word cursed is used here, it doesn't mean that God's going to speak to us with colorful language, that God's going to curse us, okay? It doesn't mean that we're, we have bad luck. What the word curse there means is we are literally under divine judgment. That's what it means. We're trying to be right with God, and what happens? Instead of being right with God, we're under God's judgment. That's option number one. Option number two. Second option. How can I be right with God? Well, 
the Apostle Paul would say, through faith alone, and what I realized what I should have added there is it's through faith alone in Christ alone. Okay? You can be in a right relationship with God, but it's through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul seemingly wants to make it really, really clear to us that option number one didn't go where we'd like it to. As much as we think it's attractive, it doesn't go there. So when you go to verse 11, the first part of verse 11, he's going to bring up the idea again of option number one. And verse 11 says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Okay. Paul said, if it wasn't clear enough in verse 10, let me make it very clear. Your own effort, as much as you want to try that, isn't going to work. Now that's kind of depressing. And I'll be honest, one of the things that's not really fun about being a pastor is to stand up and say, you want to try and do this on your own, you're screwed. Because you're like, you're insulting me. Yeah, I probably am. I'm also bringing up this is reality. So how can we do this? I mean, how can we be right with God if we can't do it? Well, look at all of verse 11, sort of the second part of the verse especially where it says these words. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, but he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, trying to do it on your own isn't going to get you in a right relationship with God. It isn't going to give you the life you desire. But it is possible to have life, and that life comes through faith. By faith, you're trusting in the Lord Jesus. Now, again, Paul is quoting, there's quote marks there, the, the statement, the righteous shall live by faith, is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And if we're going to understand all what Paul's trying to communicate, we probably need to understand some of the context of the book of Habakkuk. Okay, and it's one of those fun words to say, Habakkuk. So I'm going to try and say Habakkuk as many times as possible in this message. Okay, but the context of Habakkuk really is very simple. Habakkuk was told by God, hey, the people of Judah are about as sinful as they possibly can be, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm the God of all, and I'm going to bring the Chaldeans also known as the Babylonians, who at that time were literally the world power. I'm going to bring them in and they're going to squash the people of Judah. We're going to deal with their sin. They are literally under divine judgment and I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring my judgment. A lot of good news in the message so far, isn't there? You're screwed up and somebody is going to come and bring down the hammer in a way you have never experienced it. And what is Habakkuk's message to the people? Trust in God. You're under divine judgment. You deserve everything you are getting. And what do you do? You call out to the mercy of God. You entrust yourself to God alone. You say, why in all the world, if I'm under divine judgment, would I want to do that? Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 with me. The words will be on the screen, okay? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, in case you're wondering, that's sort of a picture of life really is bad. Okay, that is part of a scene. That's an image of the judgment of God. There's nothing. So God's bringing it. So why would I trust Him? 
Two reasons verses 18 and 19 are going to bring up. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk say, I'm going to trust God. Why? Yet I will take joy in the God of what? My salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my feet tread on my high places. Okay? God is going to judge. That's part of the testimony of the Bible. But Habakkuk, because God told him to say this, is you trust God, you entrust yourself to God. Why would Habakkuk do that? Because God is both salvation and strength. And when you trust in the Lord Jesus, when you trust in God, you entrust yourself to Him, you receive the salvation, you receive a right relationship, and you get this incredible strength to live life. See, Paul's point, to go back in concept to to Galatians chapter 3, is he's trying to say to us, if we commit ourselves to God alone, to Christ alone, and we do that by turning from sin to God, we say, I want to repent of my sin, and I want to trust the Lord Jesus alone. When we do that, we get a right relationship with God. We are, in that sense, saved. We receive this justified before God. I'm in right relationship with God. And God puts his strength into my life so that I can actually live life. I don't have to do this alone. I don't have to do it on my own effort. I receive it fully from him. So to answer the question, how can I have a right relationship with God? It's by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, having answered the question, we need, I think, kind of be honest and say there's a little bit of a tension point there. I mean, you think about it, almost every area of your life, you're expected to do something to make it happen. Why does Paul say in this part of life that the only way to be right with God is just by faith? Why does he say that? Well, look at verse 13 with me of Galatians 3. Why does he say this? Verse 13 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay, verse 13 makes a pretty bold claim. Jesus took our curse. Okay, we're cursed. We should be the ones under divine judgment. Jesus takes it. Now, to understand some of that, to to make sense of that, we probably need to understand that the word curse means the wrath of God. Another way to say it is it's a sign or a symbol of the, literally, of God's divine punishment, God bringing to bear on us that we don't deserve any of this. And in part to do that, Paul is quoting from another verse in the Old Testament, Okay, at the end of verse 13, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. And in that context, in Deuteronomy 21, it basically will tell us that according to Old Testament law, if you have done something worthy of death, okay, if the punishment for your action, what you did was death, then what happens is the person's going to be put up on a tree. Now, they may have already died, in some cases already put to death, but then you put them up on a tree. And the reason you do that is to make it incredibly clear that this person rejected God, and now they are under the punishment of God, okay? I'm really feeling like this is such an upbeat message. We're talking about punishment and judgment. 
I should be talking to my kids if you disobey me. You know, no. But that's what he's saying. You disobey, God puts it on the tree. You have rejected God, and so God is communicating you deserve to be rejected by him. Now, when I read verse 13, we can go, well, those are interesting points of data, and that's what God did, okay, and we can be, ah, that's uncomfortable. But you know what? I think we miss the point if we're just uncomfortable. I think when we read those verse, that verse, you and I should be sobered to the depth of our souls. Because part of what's being communicated through this verse is that you and I deserve the punishment of God. We deserve divine retribution. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that are going to make that abundantly clear that we have walked away from God. We have rejected God. Whether it's Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 23, whether it's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, whether it's Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, whether it's Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, we could probably go on. There's a lot of verses that make it abundantly clear. We walked away from God. We deserve to be hung on a tree. We deserve to be seen as the one who's rejected God. And yet what does Paul tell us in verse 13? Christ took that for us. I deserve all of this. I can't do anything to change it. Yet Jesus took it. You say, why? I want you to look at the words on the screen from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which I kind of a parallel thought verse explains it. For Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's us. Why? That he might bring us to God. Jesus did this amazing thing. We couldn't do anything. He, the righteous one, took on our unrighteousness to solve our problem. A problem we couldn't solve, we couldn't even help bring the solution. It's an amazing thing. Why is it by faith alone? Because folks, you and I couldn't do anything. But the Lord Jesus could. He came and He took literally the stuff that was on us, He took it off of us. And He put it on Himself. And He died in our place. For us, instead of us. Why? That we could be brought to God. On one hand, that's incredibly sobering. That says some things about us. Some things I think we need to face very clearly. This is true about me. But there's also this amazing story of what the Lord Jesus has done. I don't have to worry about that. He took it all. He suffered for sins once. It's done. It's an amazing thought. Sobering on one hand, amazing on another, but how do we respond to this? I mean, Jesus has done this for us. What are we supposed to do with it? I mean, if Jesus died dealt with our sin, and then he rose again to offer us new life. I mean, when the people were baptized today, there's a sense in which when they entered the water, they're joining Jesus in his death. When they go under the water, they join Jesus in his burial. They come back up. It's symbolic of the new life. Jesus died to give us this life with God. But it's not just life. 
There's sort of some ways to describe the life. Look at verse 14, Galatians 3. Paul goes farther and he says, so that in Christ, Jesus has done this, why? So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul is saying, here's the life God offers. It's a life where we are connected to Jesus. Okay, a life of incredible blessing. The blessing that was promised to Abraham, all of a sudden we're in that. It's a part of our lives. And it's also a life in which the literal, the Spirit of God, the one who caused the resurrection, is now in our lives to empower us, to strengthen us, to help us to live life. That's what Jesus offers. That's put before us. But how does it go from being put before us to being a, from a possibility to actually being true in our lives? I want you to notice in verse 14, at the beginning of the verse, the words, in Christ, and at the end, through faith. You see, when I put my faith in Christ, through faith, I'm made a part of God's family. I am considered in Christ. I'm connected to Him. So when I trust Christ, I receive the Holy Spirit. When I trust Christ, I'm also a part of God's family. I receive the blessings of Abraham. Let me wrap this up. The big question was, how can you have a right relationship with God? Paul says two options. One is you can try the do approach. Try and earn God's favor. Do it. You try it. Or you can receive what you could call maybe the done approach. Receive what Jesus has done for you. Two options. But Paul says really only one works. It's the second one. It's trusting in Christ alone. Now we want to close the service in just a minute by doing the right hand of fellowship. We're going to invite some folks up. We're going to do that, but you know what? Before they do that, before we do that, I want to ask you to wrestle with two questions, not just for 30 seconds, for quite a while, maybe the whole day, maybe the whole week. Because this is great, we can talk about it, but this is a big life question that has huge ramifications. So two questions. Question number one, for you and for me. Have you trusted in Christ alone? See, this is a big life question. It may not be a question you and I think about every day. But it is a big life question. And there's a lot that rides on the outcome of this question. Have you, by faith, trusted in Christ alone? If you're here this morning and there's some barriers for you, there's some things you're like, I don't know if I can do that. Can I challenge you this week? Even today, grab me. Let's have a conversation. Let's see if we can help you sort through some things because this is a huge question. Have you trusted Christ alone? This isn't a joke. The outcome and the results of this question are huge. Which then brings me to the second question. If you know the answer to a big life question, how can you be in a right relationship with God? Are you encouraging other people 
to trust Jesus alone. A neighbor, a friend, a coworker, maybe it's a family member. Are you encouraging them? Hey, I think I found the answer to this question. Again, we don't ask big life questions every single day. I get that. And I get it when we get to this time on a Sunday morning, some of us are thinking about what's for lunch. That's not insignificant. I get that. We all need to eat. But folks, sometimes instead of urgent questions, there's just important questions. And the important questions are, have you trusted Christ alone? And are you encouraging other people to trust Christ alone? We cannot avoid those. They may not seem urgent right in this second. But I guarantee you they are the most important questions you will ever ask and answer. I'm going to pray real quick. And then I'm going to invite some folks forward for the right hand of fellowship. Okay, Father, you have placed in front of us questions that aren't necessarily easy for us but there are questions that we need to answer and I am so grateful to you that you invite us to see your word where you declare the answer I pray we'd see we can be right with you because of Christ alone but I pray we wouldn't just see it I pray we'd receive it by trusting in Christ alone And I pray then we would share that. We'd encourage others to do the same. Lord, you call us to this. You invite us. I pray we would hear your voice. And I pray we would not ignore what you're inviting us to today. In the very precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.